raging storm will stay a little longer with your feet up on the dashboard of my summer dream and westward i was hoping that we'd wake up to the softest of spring mornings humming do 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 lessons from a life tied to family, community, and the land. I'm Shannon Hayes and I operate Sapbush Hollow Farm with three generations of my family in the northern Catskill Mountains in upstate New York. I'm the chef owner of Sapbush Cafe, a farm-to-table and neighbor-to-neighbor experience in our tiny hamlet of West Fulton, and I'm also the author of a few books including Radical Homemakers and the Grass-Fed Gourmet. This podcast is the audio version of my blog which can be found at sapbush.com or theradicalhomemaker.net. Some people were super prepared for this outbreak. Not only that, they were super prepped for war, famine, hurricanes, earthquakes, you name it. Does that mean they're in better shape right now than the rest of us? Not necessarily. That's what I'll be talking about this week on the Hearth of Sapbush Hollow. I received a letter from a reader, Landon, last week that's prompting this week's podcast. He writes, I read your blog post about coronavirus and saw how every choice you made focused on your community and then saw how every tier of your Patreon included some kind of giving to the community. Why do you care about people and your community so much? Big question, I know. How does your focus on people and community make your life better? When I read this email, I had a million different things I wanted to say. Here's what I settled on for my response, Landon. It was called housewife's syndrome. Doctors from the 1950s and 1960s used the term to slap a label on the frightening numbers of women suffering depression, hopelessness, anxiety, and emptiness. It inspired Betty Friedan to write The Feminine Mystique, and it led to the second wave of feminism. That was my mom's generation. As a result, I grew up in the 1980s a latchkey kid doing evening chores with my brother, investing hours into homework and studying so that I'd achieve great test grades, gain entry into the best colleges, and score a meaningful career for myself. Except it wasn't all that fun for me. No day at school could compare with a day helping my elderly Appalachian neighbors, Ruth and Sanford, clean their barn. No restaurant could be found that compared to Ruth's kitchen table and a plate of chicken and biscuits. No material item could be attained that brought more pleasure than wandering the fields, forests, and stream banks of West Fulton. So I watched Ruth and Sanford closely, and I discovered that they were able to have what I considered a first-class existence— They never worried about having enough money, and they never required more than a few thousand dollars to live on each year. 
and they managed this with domestic skills. They mended, repaired, tinkered, gardened, canned, butchered, buried, yes, they considered that a verb, crocheted, read, played, and chatted. After attaining my own education and career credentials, I decided that theirs was the path I most aspired to. And I wrote a manifesto, Radical Homemakers, on the social, economic, spiritual, and ecological significance of this choice. I wrote about how it works. But in traveling across the country interviewing peers on similar paths, I took in a greater lesson that was little more than a parenthetical section in the book. I saw when it didn't work. I was visiting homemakers and homesteaders in a new millennia. I spent hours around their kitchen tables teasing out the details of their lives, and that's when I came to a startling observation. All of them were masters of canning, mending, and gardening, but as they slowly divulged their innermost thoughts, I discovered that only some of them were happy. Housewife syndrome doesn't magically disappear just because someone has noble reasons for adopting a hearth-centered life. Deep within my notes, I began sorting out the men and women I'd interviewed, looking at their stories, gauging their levels of contentment, and I observed that this radical homemaking path involved three phases— It started with a renouncing period where a would-be RHer would study up on all the ways our conventional materialistic culture was failing society and planet. From there, they moved into a reclaiming period where they recovered domestic skills. They started gardens, hung laundry out on the line, taught themselves to knit, butchered hogs, and built chicken coops. This reclaiming period was the most photogenic phase I saw handmade furniture, hand-carved plates and spoons, beautiful sweaters, stocked pantries, lush gardens, contented goats, musical instruments, children adored in mended hand-me-downs playing with wooden toys and earth clay. But after a few hours around the kitchen table, I discovered that only some of these people were happy. Ironically, it was the greatest masters of these homesteading skills that struck me as the unhappiest, the ones who took it the farthest with hand-hewn homes and woodpiles sorted according to log diameter, the ones homeschooling vast broods of children, or the ones who were so prepped for the next plague or apocalyptic catastrophe that they maintained written inventories of their coffee stores, dried legumes, and canned carrots. Their homes were works of art, but their hearts were empty. These were the people who ultimately confessed to feelings of despair and hopelessness. From there, I honed in on the happiest among them. Those were the keepers of the homes that were hardest to photograph because there was so much more mess and imperfection, failed experiments, more dust, ignored laundry piles. And while messy homes were not guaranteed signs of happiness, they were symptoms. The cause of the happiness was something deeper. These people weren't adopting the radical homemaking or homesteading path as a moral justification for their existence. They were using it to leverage their deepest dreams. They had just enough self-reliance skills to reduce their dependence on the conventional economy, and they used that freedom to apply themselves to the bigger, tougher projects of making a better world. These people were, in my mind, the Phase 3 
radical homemakers. They had moved through the renouncing and reclaiming phases and had entered the rebuilding phase. These were the folks who engaged with the broader community, created organizations, and built small businesses. While the press that covered the radical homemaking movement was fascinated with the picturesque reclaimers, those people who could skin a sheep, tan a hide, and weave the fabric that became their children's clothes, I was more taken with the rebuilders. Their less picturesque homemaking skills hinted at the fact that their attention was on the tougher jobs, finding ways to rebuild local food systems, bringing alternative health care into the mainstream, changing the way we educate, opening businesses in economic wastelands, designing systems for reducing our ecological impact, addressing political injustices. I had more affinity with this group as I had my own focus, to build my own family's business and make it profitable. I'm an entrepreneurial junkie, but just as I saw those reclaimers as victims of housewife syndrome, I developed my own hypothesis— A business person could be just as obsessed with the bottom line. He or she could suffer profit syndrome, a fixation on the bottom line that fails to result in deeper happiness and fulfillment. Like homemaking, entrepreneurship is only satisfying if it enables you to tackle the bigger projects. For me, that's changing the economic reality of a community, helping to build deeper relationships, and fostering greater bonds between people and place. Yes, I need to make money, and yes, I enjoy crunching numbers and finding ways to get all the digits to settle into the proper place values. But the joy is only as great as its ability to let me come back and do the bigger spirit-building work another day. I want to use my business to create a deeper, more meaningful life for my community. Yes, Landon, I suppose Sapbush Hollow's community focus does seem a little more apparent in these recent weeks facing the COVID pandemic. As we locked the door to the cafe and closed off the farm, I couldn't help but recognize the vast wealth, resources, and freedom that my family enjoys compared with the rest of the world right now. We have thousands of acres to wander, seemingly endless food, a daily rhythm that's only minimally disrupted by social distancing, and miles and miles of wool yarn for all the knitting I could be getting done. But I learned a lot from those radical homemakers I studied a decade ago. Yes, we have reclaimed enough skills to survive a pandemic. At least, I hope we have. But we'd be miserable if all we did was survive. The potential that chaotic times like these offer is the opportunity to create something better. And if I focus my energy on that potential, then disinfecting the mail, singing happy birthday over and over and over again as I wash my hands, and wearing a mask and gloves aren't harbingers of bad times. They are part of a spiritual ritual reminding me to apply my mind body, and spirit to the greater work, to let this be an opportunity to make things better. Maybe we'll succeed this time. Maybe we'll fail. But with the right focus, no matter what, the journey is going to be a joyous one. This podcast happens with the support of my patrons on Patreon, and this week I'd like to send a shout-out to my patrons 
Julie Mason and Annette Verity. Local folks, thank you for all the business you've been providing to Sapbush Hollow Farm. We are honored to be your farmers and to help you cook at home with nourishing ingredients. If you aren't local and you're sending your food dollars to your own local farmers right now, thank you. This is going to keep our community economies going, no matter what happens in the broader world. Our online virtual general store for self-serve pickup continues to grow. You can find it on the main menu of our homepage at sapbush.com. We are doing our best to get your food to you as efficiently and as safely as possible. Please keep those orders coming. If there is any way we can serve you better, let us know. We are expanding our offerings every week in an effort to help keep folks out of crowded grocery stores. If you have an idea of something we should carry, we are eager to hear about it. And a quick shout out to the frontliners. We have a number of you who have supported our farm for years. I want you to know that we're thinking of you and sending gratitude and prayers. Hang in there. And to my fellow farmers, again, thanks for listening and thanks for the work you're doing. We are not frontliners, but we are the roots of the system. And while we have a lot more personal liberties right now, we are not getting the same downtime as the folks who get to shelter in place. We've got the usual labors of the season combined with the pressure to get food to the public as safely as possible. Remember that you cannot execute your calling if you are not well. Take care of yourselves. Take the disinfecting and the precautions seriously. While so many are trapped at home feeling powerless, the work we can do to build health and restore community is endless, but we can only do what the day allows. Get some rest so you can keep going strong tomorrow, okay? The work will always be there another day. Stay healthy, everyone. Thank you, folks. I couldn't do it without you. If you'd like to help support my work and gain access to exclusive content, you can do so for as little as $1 a month by hopping over to Patreon and looking up Shannon Hayes. This was produced and edited by the sexiest man alive, my husband Bob Hooper, and the great music we're listening to comes to us from memory. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Now the birds are singing about all the things they've seen over in the other countries, sowing seeds and reaping dreams, and I think that I am learning all about. Stay still